Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend Anne Chavruta, Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Megillah, daf Gimel, page three. So we have an interesting opening, it's not quite the opening, of the daf, where we have a topic um, which might surprise everybody coming off the Mishnah. It's not found in the Mishnah that we've just discussed from yesterday's daf, but it's talking about the translations of the Torah, the translations of the Torah and of the prophets and of the writings, I did three different sections of Tanakh. It's not exactly clear whose ruling this is, either Rabbi Yirmiya or Rabbi Chia Bar Abba. And then the statement is as follows. So this is a, it's an official pronouncement, right? That the translation of the Torah, meaning that which was going to be used in the synagogues, was composed by Unclus. Unclus was known as Unclus the Ger, the convert, and it was based on the teachings of Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yoshua. We'll come back to Unclus in a moment um, about who he was and so on. The I should note, this is a little bit of a complicated thing, and I'm trying to think, I'm not sure that we're really going to read it inside, so I'll mention it outside. Back in the day, when they would have, in the synagogue service, they would have the Torah reading, and then, like, concomitant with the Torah reading, or write, uh, you know, Verse by verse, at the time of the Torah reading, somebody the would would read out the tr- the translation of that same verse into the vernacular, which at that time was Aramaic. And the point here is that what they're supposed to use is this translation that was composed by Uncle Slager, and um, the person who did this reading out was called the Meturgaman from Targum or Litargame is to translate. So the person who who had this kind of official clergy, not quite, not quite clergy, but it was an official um, liturgical role, uh, was called the Maturgaman. Okay, now, Targum Shel Nevi'im, the translation for the, for the right, no, I'm sorry, the translation for the prophets, Yonatan ben Uziel Amaro, Mipi Chagai Zachariu Malachi. So the statement here is that the, that the composition, that the Targum, the translation that was to u- be used for the books of the prophets, which of course is significant for the Haftarot, um, was composed by Rav Yonatan ben Uziel, and the claim is that he was using a tradition of the translation going back to the time of Chagai, Zachariah, and Malachi. Now, I will say, and I don't, I don't know enough about this, and what I did know, I don't recall well enough, but I do know that there is scholarly debate over you know, who wrote each of these actual translations. Rev. Yonatan ben Uziel is known as the, this, you know, big translator, but um, then there, you know, when they go back to look at the ancient manuscripts of exactly who, you know, what is this work of translation? So there's a work called Pseudo-Jonathan, and there's a work called Fragmentary Yonatan, meaning each of these things was an attempt to put together the, the Aramaic translation, and none of it is so clear that, that it was actually written by Rav Yonatan ben Uziel, even though certainly that is a traditional assessment of the text. But, but for the scholars who, who delve into these kinds of things, um, from what I recall, from when I studied these things more in depth, it is um, less, less secure of a tradition, meaning as, as secure as a tradition as it is in the Gemara, the actual texts... Uh, may not actually support that. And then the Gemara here continues, So the claim is that when Rav Yonatan ben Uziel was writing this translation, then the very land of Israel started to tremble 
for as far as 400 parsa, which is a parasang, right? It's a unit of measurement of distance. And then what happened? Yatsta bat kol amra, the heavenly voice came down and said, Mi adam. Who has revealed my secrets to humanity? Now, this I think is an important point about translations. Um, your data, when we were preparing, you mentioned this, like the, there's a certain amount of uh, hesitation, ambivalence, <laughs> excuse me, about translation on the part of Chazal. You know, that, that's very evident here, right? This idea that a translation into the vernacular, whatever that vernacular might be. Nowadays, we would say English. Look, that's what our podcast is. We're, tra- we're you know, dealing with the same text, but in translation, um, the idea is that it's revealing God's secrets. And those secrets are from the books of the Navi, and some of those works of the Navi, some of those prophecies are indeed very deep, and some of them are esoteric. And the idea that any old guy could come along and read them in the vernacular you know, kind of belies the the presumption that you actually have to know something in Torah to be able to have access. And the idea is like, no, according to this, according to the idea that you're going to translate things, both Torah and Navi, into the vernacular, then this, I think, I think it's been a calling card of talking Talmud too. The idea is to give people access. But yet, as we see, Chazal are a little ambivalent. And we're going to, we're going to continue to see that here as well. Um, I said we're going to come back to Unclos. That's still coming. So Rev. Yonatan ben Uziel stood up on his feet and he said, I am the one who revealed your secrets to mankind, meaning through his translation. You know, it's, it's revealed before you that I didn't do this for my own honor. And I didn't do it for my father's honor. I did it for your, your meaning God, he's responding to God directly. I did it for your honor so that there will not be too much machloket, too many uh, disputes or fights amongst the Jewish people. Meaning as long as people don't have an official translation, then there's going to be quibbling and arguing and fighting over what the real, what the real meaning of the text should be, especially as you get to more obscure verses. But if you have somebody, and this is what happened at the very first line that I read, you know, that we can say this is the established official translation, then even if there's still some delving in and maybe some, you know, harumphing over whether that's actually a good translation, it removes the the quibbling and fighting that could potentially otherwise arise. And then the Gemara goes on, So he, Yonatan Benuziel, tried to then translate the writings. Writings meaning from Psalms and the Megillot and the Book of Daniel, and so on. So then a heavenly voice comes down and says to him, "Enough!" Meaning it's bad enough that you translated the Navi. What are you going to do here? And the claim here is that the within the writings of within the writings of the writings, meaning the texts of the books of the writings, there is. Um, the revelation about the date of the time that the Messiah would arrive, meaning this is part of the more obscure passages within the book of Daniel. And if the book of Daniel would be translated, which, by the way, it has been translated since then, then the concern is that everything would become revealed in a way that would be, you know, dangerous and perhaps corrupted or whatever. I don't know. So the 
the point is, and of course, and this is true, right? Rav Yonatan ben Uziel did not complete his translation of the writings. Um, there is but current, I, I just want to point something out here that sort of the story has to get revolved with some type of like divine revelation, right? Like you have to have the bot pole come out to sort of stop this activity. It's not human. It's not other Chazal who said to him, you know, Yonatan ben Uziel, you shouldn't do this. It's the bot pole that has to stop him. And that bot pole is always sort of used in Talmud as like something that wouldn't be apparent or intuitive to humans, right? So the bot pole has to come to correct the situation um, or to confirm a truth. And so it's interesting to me that it's the bot pole who comes to sort of stop further translation. So I hear that. And I, I hear what you're saying that, you know, it takes God's getting involved to make sure that the translation doesn't get out of hand, that not too much is translated for access to too many people. But I would say that as much as this is then a concern about protecting the Holy Word, um, especially since we know that the Targum, the translation that is called Yonatan ben Uziel is not the translation exactly by Rav Yonatan ben Uziel, because again, pseudo-Jonathan, fragmentary Yonatan, and so on. And so the business of, of you know, what happened to him, this story of, I feel like more than usual, I would say that this is a kind of narrative that is not necessarily representing any kind of historical event, let's say, as for, you know, for the experience of Ravionat and Benuziel, because it's not even clear how it came about that that translation that is ascribed to his name really was, you know, ascribed to his name. And so likewise, what happened to the Ketuvim? Did he not finish it? Did he not start it? Did he die before it could happen? Did, you know, and all, or, or is there some concern that actually it needed to be done in stages and rather, you know, keep the messages of the books of the Ketuvim, Ketuvim away from, you know, the regular people because there was esoterica in there. And now we have a bigger discussion on the part of Chazal that isn't, it, it goes beyond what really happened with this man. It's much more about the phenomenon of the books, I think. And I do think that the idea that, you know, when they present this this phenomenon of the batkol comes out, it's, it's totally removed from human hands. I, I would say this very delicately that, you know, this is the human hands putting the whole story into the mouth of the not human hands, right? Like, as opposed to it being something that's a transcription of an event that took place with Raviona Tambanuzio. And we're going to say that usually, I mean, I'll but say here... It more bluntly. I, I think the backhole tends to be like a, it's a literary device of the Talmud. So I think it's a way of them ascribing a particular sort of religious significance to some sort of event that they're describing or telling in the way that Chazal wants it to be presented, right? It's like, you know, sometimes when I think we read these stories in the Talmud, the question that we should be asking is not, is it, did this happen exactly as the Talmud presents it? But it's more, to me, the question is, why did the Talmud present the story this way? What is it they Fair. want us to learn from this type of storytelling? Um, and then I'll just for two seconds, you could talk a little more about Uncle. It's like Yonatan ben Uziel, just to sort of put him in a context, is a student of Hillel, Hillel and Shammai Hillel. Um, and, um, he um, supposedly maybe wrote a book of Kabbalah called the Sefer Migdanim, which is attributed to him. But more importantly, sort of what he's, I would say, most famous for today 
is his caver, right? He is uh, buried in, so this, you know, this Gemara is one thing that he's famous for, but his his uh, kever, his tomb is in Amuka, which is in the Galil, uh, in, near Tzfat, um, and people uh, tend to pray there. Um, I won't get into how this started or why this started. There's a whole controversy about why, uh, but it's a particular spot for people who are looking to find a marriage partner. So it's a very, very famous place to pray at. And that's... Well, because so he didn't get married. Luka, this is this Yonatan Uziel, supposedly. Because he didn't get married. Right. He didn't get married. Yes. Right. One of the traditions is, is that he himself was not married and was childless. So that's why people go to pray there. Yes. But, you know, right. look that's him up. Table. It's interesting. He, yeah. He's supposed to be the Talmud Mufak, the like the most beloved expert student of Hillel Azakain. And, you know, there could be a lot of re- good worthy reasons. If if praying at gravesides is, you know, ever a valuable practice, I would say that he would be a good one, regardless of this particular right. if, it's your jam, if it's your jam, I'll admit if it's, it's my jam. jam. <laughs> say there. Right. No, no, I'm not. I'm just And I, I'm gonna guess it's not yours. <laughs> Uh, mixed feelings. It depends. It depends. Okay. But I, but but my point is that Rav Yonatan Ben Uziel has a worthy kever, right? Meaning he was a worthy person. He's the greatest student of Hillel Hazaki. And like, who are we to say, uh, what he can't help? I don't know. Help Artsfilot. Whatever it means. Whatever it is that happens when people go and pray at a, a graveside, you know, presumably that should be able to happen at his kever, independent of the question of, you know, finding a spouse, finding, having children, whatever it is. Okay, let's put that aside. I do think that the thing he's most famous for, really, is his commentary on Navi. Anybody who's looking, meaning, again, I don't think it's really his commentary on Navi, or however it is that it comes down in terms of these fragments and so on, but that's what he's known for. He's known for this commentary on Navi. Let's talk about Onkelis for a moment. Onkelis, it's not exactly clear, and the is going to ask again, like, was it really Onkelis who did this writing? Um, is the person named that we call Onkelis the Gare, is he all, is he the person who is also known as Akila, who translated the Bible into Greek? And the the question arises because he seems to have come from the family of the Roman emperor. Then he converted to Judaism. He became a student of Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yoshua, as the Gemara said, right? That that's where his, his um, line of translation comes from. Um, and so from there, we like, you know, he's he becomes this very powerful or very important figure because he's tra- if that's especially if he's the same person as Aquila, then he's translated the Bible into Greek. He's translated the Bible into Aramaic. All the rest of the world owes him a great credit of gratitude, a great debt of gratitude, excuse me. And all the people who are weary of translating Holy Writ, you know, can be very frustrated with him, let's say, because, again, he's making things accessible. And it also means that things are. I would say one step further removed from the original, which when you're talking about a holy text, that step further away, you know, could be of significance. Um, the idea of keeping things not in the vernacular also does create a class of people who are the experts and the people who are have to rely on them. So that's also like a, an interesting twist in terms of like who are Chazal and who are the people who knew their biblical text and who are the rest of everybody who so much, you know, who did not so much. Um, I will say this, Onkelos' translation is accepted as a good translation. It is a very terse, very literal translation. You know, not, not every single time we will acknowledge the universal truth that a translation is by definition an interpretation. 
but at the same time, um, the fact that, you know, if you're looking for an Aramaic translation of the Torah, Unglis came to be the gold standard. Um, and I think that that matters because by the same token that the same people who are wary of there being any translation were willing to accept the fact that he got it right. Even when he translates something against the basic plain sense of the text, they still accept that it was a good translation. And then, of course, the question is, why would anybody translate against the plain sense of the text? And that's where a lot of good shiurim can be built. Um, okay, I think there's a little bit more in the Gemara on this exact you know, issue. You know, There's also a discussion of the Tameha Mikra, the, the cantillation notes. Right. As compared to, you know, how do we have that tradition that this is exactly the exact way to break the verses? This is exact way. We'll come to that later in Masach um, But also that these are the Tameha Mikra, um, <coughs> excuse me, the Tamim. And the idea is, the claim is that this is, you know, it's a from the, it's a Masoretic tradition is the way it's tr- referred to. What that means is it is very much a matter of tradition. It is very, it is considered very authoritative, uh, that it was preserved very, very carefully. Um, and so then the claim is, the Gemara here says, the idea is that there was always this Masoretic, um, early, there was a translation into Aramaic, and there was early, um, the cantillation notes and so on. So what happens then is that it got forgot, according to this claim, it got forgotten, and then Uncle's came and reestablished it. So again, historically what happened is maybe perhaps less clear and also perhaps less important if we're talking about establishing the authority of using a translation, this is when it happens. Yeah. I, and I, the last point I just want to mention is, you know, this whole question of translation when we're living in a day and age where everything is accessible, like we're doing a Dafyomi podcast, everything is translated. You have things like Safaria, uh, in a way, um, Hazal's attitude towards translation is very, very different than today's attitude towards it. And, you know, I'm not going to say something's right or wrong. I just think we should give pause and think a little bit about what were the things that they were worried about. And I think some of them do have, you know, some uh, do have some footing. You know, you do worry about any translation, you know, is some form of interpretation, uh, to, to quote our friend Rabbi Seth Farber. And, um you know, I, and I think we do need to think about those things. Um, I do think so. I, I have always been a little bit of a purist in terms of like, I'm going to be a starker. I'm going to, you know, refuse to use an English translation. I'm going to use dictionaries, which, of course, is a means of making my own translation fundamentally. Right. Let's let's not think that it's anything other than that, because my brain is still functioning in translation. Um, I would say that. And that last point, this idea of, you know, our brains functioning in translation is also a key one, because even if your language is the same language as the text, meaning you're a Hebrew speaker and you're using a Hebrew text, or you're, for that matter, an Aramaic speaker, and you can use these texts in the original, the bottom line is every person comes to every text with their own imprint and therefore is inherently translating, right, to whatever degree that may be, into their own understanding, their own misunderstanding, and so on. So I think that the real concern about translation is a worry about misunderstanding. And I think that it's something that we cannot escape, no matter what languages we're using, because fundamentally, each person who comes to the text is going to, you know, is going to have to do that translation into their own mind. And therefore, 
And therefore, it's part and parcel of the practice and engagement of learning to begin with. It doesn't scare me in the way that my purist self used to, used to be scared. Fair. Uh, I'm going to move on now to one small thing on Amud Bet. Uh, and just for the sake of time, uh, I may talk about it a little bit more than read inside. But the Gemara gets into a discussion about how the Kohanim Levim and the Anche Mamad, which we all learned about in Masach Tanit. Um, and if you're joining us now, go look at some of our Tanit episodes. Um, I think it's around Chav Zion or Chav Chet, which gets into a discussion about that. Um, that they basically suspend their work in the temple or their reading of the Torah for the Mamad in order to hear the Megillah. And then the Gemara gets into a discussion about what other mitzvah, like they sort of pair mitzvahs, like, you know, mitzvah against mitzvah, and they're like, this and that, which one wins out? So, um, you know, it's like saying like vanilla chocolate, which one's better, right? So, um, Amar Rabba, Shita Li. So Rabba says, it's obvious to me, Avodu Mikra Megillah, Mikra Megillah Adiv, right? That if you're comparing the, the Avoda and the temple and reading the Megillah, the meal is gonna, you know, is gonna take preference. Me do me de Rabbi Yosi Barchanina, right? This is from uh, this is based on what Rabbi Yosi Barchanina taught. This was in the previous Gemara before that it was taught before, based on a Pasuk um, in Esther uh, chapter nine, verse twenty-eight. Talmud Torah Mikra Megillah, right? But now he says, Okay, what about if you have an opportunity to study Torah Mikra Megillah? Mikra Megillah Adi. So Rabbi says. The reading of the Megillah is right? based on the fact, right, or based upon the, you know, sages or the, the rabbis of the house of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, you know, used, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically relied on uh, Rabbi Yossi Barchanina and what he taught before that in that one, you know, interrupts Torah study in order to hear the Megillah. Okay, Talmud Torah Umit Mitzvah. So now here's the next scenario. What about Mitzvah? That is a court that no one, there's nobody around to bury it, right? There's no, nobody's buried this body. Mate Mitzvah Adiv. So he says the Mate Mitzvah is the preferable thing to do. Mitzvah, right? And so here he braces this on a brace. Right? We stop learning Torah in order to take out uh, to bring out a corpse for burial. kala, right? We also stop learning Torah in order to bring in a bride. Um, So then they go, okay, what about if you had to choose between temple service and mate mitzvah? So mate mitzvah is still adiv. And where does he get this from? Me right? So this is a whole, uh, they learn this out from, uh, 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 from a pasuk in Bamidbar, chapter six, verse seven, which has to do with the Nazir and the fact that the Nazir is not allowed to make him himself tame, right? But it specifically says that he can't make himself tame, uh, you know, even for his mother, his father, his brother, or even his uh, uh, or even his sister. Um, and um, and it basically what he learns from that is is that if there isn't anybody. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what he's saying is Tamud Lamar. I'm skipping a little bit here, but their conclusion is right? Meaning for a sister is he can't be impure for a sister because the Im- implication is there's someone else who can uh, bear, who can bury her, okay? Right? But if there's nobody who's responsible for that body, then it's a mate mitzvah, then, then you're, you're allowed to make yourself uh, 
And then finally, based on all this, you know, Rabbi brings another question by Rabbi Mitzvah. So when you have right, anything, any category, any other mitzvah that it was pitted against, or mitzvah, which seems to also be adif, or, you know, that's the preference that we give, you pit it against any other mitzvah. What do you do if it's Mikra Megillah, right? Which one is adif? Mikra Megillah Adiv Mishum Persume Nisa, Odema Mitzvah Adiv Mishum Kvo Tabrio. And now they give maybe Mikra Megillah should be preferable because it should, should you know, should gain preference. It's the, it's the, um, it's the publicizing of a miracle. Or maybe the Mate Mitzvah should take precedence because it's preserving human dignity. Batar Dabai Hadar Pashta, right? So what does he say? So after he sort of raises this dilemma, he resolves it on his own. And what does he say? Mate mitzvah adif. He decides mate mitzvah is adif. Right? Because there's a saying that so great is covered of riot, so great is the preservation of human dignity, it overrides uh, any prohibition, that, you know, it overrides prohibition in the Torah. So therefore, you know, it would definitely override the reading of the Megillah itself. So I just loved this passage, you know, this whole idea of sort of like, you know, comparing mitzvah to mitzvah and sort of having to make a choice. This is a little bit different than what we saw about the idea of, you know, if you're you're busy with the mitzvah, you then therefore exempt from doing another mitzvah. This is framing that conversation a little differently. We're saying you sort of haven't started to do anything and you have a choice to do two things, which one are you going to do? Wow. Yeah, I think that's a really important insight. And I think that I would say that, you know, if you woke me up in the middle of the night, I've learned Masach HaMegiliyah before a few times. And I think of this parak as very language oriented, you know, you know, to wit, the translation and so on. And I feel like everything you've just talked about is, you know, kind of defies that and takes it much more, you know, much deeper. Discussion for the day. Reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for posting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about the staff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.